As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We interrupt this broadcast before it was history. It was news. It appears as though something has happened in the motor I said, those are shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history, it was news. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Please, there are four elements that I have to uh, receive information regarding. We felt it and we heard it. It was a massive rumble. As the chopper goes around the side of the federal building. Wow, about a third of the building has been blown away. I had covered hurricanes and all kinds of explosions, but I wasn't really prepared for, for this one. The video that I had seen of the explosion didn't even compare to actually standing in front and and looking up, it took my breath away. You started realizing, you know, no, this was no gas explosion. It was something far, far beyond that. Two different triage teams, we raced around the other side of the building in time to uh, uh, catch two children and one adult. And there was basically nothing we could do for them. They were just, they were gone. We never would have thought of terrorism. We didn't think of terrorism at that point in time. Those days in Oklahoma City and the days that followed, covering that story. It never leaves you, really. I'm Brian Williams. April 19th of 1995 dawned as a perfectly ordinary Wednesday morning in Oklahoma City. 
But for some, that date marked a dark anniversary. It had been two years to the day since the federal government's botched raid on the Branch Davidian compound near Waco, Texas. That siege lasted 51 days, and it ended with the compound engulfed in flames, killing 76 Davidians, 25 children among them, along with their leader, David Koresh. I was our first correspondent down there the day of the, uh, the fire on April 19, 1993. Tony Clark was Dallas bureau chief for CNN. And on April 19, 1995, they were having a memorial service at the site of their old compound. So the crew and I got up very early that morning drove down to uh, Waco uh, and were waiting for the uh, the memorial service to begin. Typical day came in about uh, 7 or 7.30 in the morning. Jerry Bonin was news director at the Oklahoma City news talk station KTOK. And we had a department head meeting scheduled at uh, 9 o'clock. It was Wednesday, so I would be looking to make sure we're in good stead for the next morning, for the rest of the week, and then be planning ahead. This is Beth O'Connell, former senior producer for Today on NBC. And then keeping an eye on any news that we would need to update the show for other time zones. I had been in Los Angeles for the previous three weeks covering the OJ trial. Stu Dan was the Today Show producer in the NBC News Chicago Bureau. I had recently returned over the weekend, and I was catching up and arranging other stories that were to come. At about 9 o'clock, everybody was still milling around, and uh, this was a room surrounded by windows, and you could see out from miles over the city. I was at home, and I was scheduled to be off that morning. Trace Reedy was the cameraman in CNN's Dallas Bureau. So I was sitting in a rocking chair with my two-month-old daughter in my arms. At 8.57 a.m., and this was all captured by a nearby security camera, Gulf War Army veteran Timothy McVeigh driving a rented rider truck that was packed full of explosives pulled up to the curb in front of the nine-story Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. McVeigh lit a five-minute fuse from inside the cab of the truck. He set the parking brake, and then he walked away. Inside the building, about 500 federal employees and several hundred visitors were starting their day. You'll receive a a copy of my proposed recommendation. Cynthia Claver, a lawyer for the Oklahoma State Water Resources Board, and nine other people were in a building across the street from the federal building holding a hearing on a dispute over a farmer's right to sell his water to a bottling company. The hearing was being recorded. And then at 9.02 a.m. came the explosion that would alter the American social and political landscape. With regard to this proceeding, basically, there are four elements that I have to... uh, uh, receive information regarding everybody let's get out of here 
And we heard it. It was a massive rumble and the building vibrated and the windows rattled. It was just a boom, 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 boom. I leaned forward and saw this massive cloud downtown. And I just stood up and ran out of that room. One of the news reporters was already talking to one of our reporters, Carrie Halsey, who had just driven by the Murrah building when the explosion happened. That's how we learned about the bombing. We felt it and saw it and heard it. When the phone rang and it was the bureau and our assignments manager there, she said, turn on the TV, we're calling you right back. And this was just after the bombing had happened. It was just breaking. I don't know if it's gas, we don't know what it is. We do know there's a plume of smoke rising to the air. And we're going to stay with you here to talk you through this as we get information on injuries. KWTV News 9 helicopter reporter Jesse Gary immediately flew to the scene. Let's try to keep my mic open if we can, and then I'll be able to talk with Jesse. If you are, as the chopper goes around the side of the federal building... We can feel the explosion. As Jesse Gary circled above and around to the front of the building, viewers got their first look at the monstrous effects of the explosion. Look at that shot. It is absolutely incredible. About a third... About a third of the building has been blown away. And you can see this smoke and debris and fire downtown on the ground. Uh, this is just devastating. And we are we are uncertain what caused the explosion at this time. It happened around 9 o'clock. It was felt as far away as Channel 9. It's been and then I, I got a call from our assignment desk. And it, it was that we had to get back to, to Dallas as quick as we could. The uh, front of the federal building in Oklahoma City had been blown up. And that hit me pretty hard. I am from Oklahoma City. I was born and raised there. My brother's law office was three blocks from the federal building. My best friend was a city councilman. and. So while we scrambled to get to Oklahoma City, I was calling my brother and I was trying to reach my friend, which I I couldn't. My thoughts started to be that there would be a number of people going to work, starting work, being on their way to work, and that there would be just potentially hundreds of people involved. So we had a producer, Stu Dan, in our Chicago bureau. And my first call was to Stu. She said, you know, Stu, we just heard about uh, an explosion happening in Oklahoma City. Really don't have any information on it, simply that it's, that it happened. It may be nothing, but why don't you make sure that we're protected and I think you should go. And without hesitation, he picked up and uh, headed out, and it turned out to be uh, incredibly fortuitous that he did. On April 19th, 1995, I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, doing a story for Dateline NBC. This is television journalist and investigative reporter Chris Hansen. I'm in the rental car, and I've got the radio on to the local news radio station, and they're talking about this explosion 
in downtown Oklahoma City. And I called the office, and they were still sorting through it. I started making phone calls. And pretty quickly, I learned that this was no accident. This was deliberate. It involved a major bomb. And although we did not know the motive at this point, things were happening very quickly. So I left Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I don't remember the exact route, but it involved at least three different airplanes. I was actually here in Los Angeles covering OJ. Stephanie Becker was a Los Angeles-based producer for NBC News. And my phone was ringing, and I picked up the phone, and my boss, Beth O'Connell, said, there was a bombing in Oklahoma City, and I need you to go. And so I put all my stuff in a bag and went to the airport. The whole sides of the buildings are blown out. It's just a war zone. There is rubble everywhere. There are parking meters laying everywhere. There are parts of cars laying all throughout the street. I had a state capitol reporter a couple of miles away. Trey Davis came down immediately in his news car, and that's when he told us the facade was gone. The front of the building was just a pile of rubble. You know, and initially, everyone thought, was it a gas explosion? We didn't think it was terrorism at the time. We just didn't know. And it took considerable time. I mean, you know, 15, 20 minutes or more before you started realizing, you know, no, this was no gas explosion. It was something far, far beyond that. It was chaos. It was just incredible. There's heavy damage downtown to uh, office buildings. As emergency crews try to assist the injured, we have no report yet on the number of injured people, just that there are numerous injuries. The assignments desk called me back and, of course, said, get to the airport as quickly as you can. I had the camera gear with me at my house, so I I drove straight from my house to Love Field and made it onto this flight at about 10.15. And it was very eerie because almost everybody on the flight were local news crews, print reporters, still photographers. Anybody that could have made it onto the plane in time was on that plane. There was a, a meeting in the executive area with Andy Lack and Bill Wheatley, the president and his number two NBC. David Borman was executive producer of special events for NBC News in New York. And an alert came through that there had been an explosion in Oklahoma City. Now, without knowing anything about it, since my job was to get NBC on the air in the event of anything, I left the meeting and ran right into a control room, which is sort of always on a standby for us. And at the time, as I was walking down the hallway, you know, you think it's probably a gas explosion. You don't really know what it's going to be. And I get into our control room, and within a couple of minutes, our engineering group had brought in the live feed from our... Oklahoma City Station, KFOR, and it looked, well, it looked pretty bad at first. I wasn't quite sure what it was because there was a lot of smoke, but it was definitely worth going on the air. We had Matt Lauer, who was one of the Today Show anchors, on standby in case there was news. And the very first special report was Matt 
saying there has been a massive explosion at a federal building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. It happened just a short time ago. We don't have any specific numbers on injuries or deaths, but we can tell you that the Red Cross in the Oklahoma City area has asked for all volunteers to report for duty. So the situation is obviously serious. We're going to go right now and join our coverage of our sister station, KFOR, in Oklahoma City. They're on the air, and maybe they can give us some more information. All watching our affiliate footage coming in, and that's when we knew that something absolutely dreadful had happened because we, I mean, the images were just horrendous of people running and it just looked like uh, such a chaotic situation. So again, Lee, uh, a tremendous situation going on right now. Emergency personnel are needed. Those that can donate blood, the need is also great there. So go to the uh, uh, Oklahoma Blood Institute or your local hospital and donate blood. That's needed right now. The pictures begin to be overwhelmingly clear. For those of us that were in TV news when the Beirut bombing had happened in 1983, um, that image that we saw in Oklahoma City evoked the Marine barracks bombing in Beirut. I mean, there were just bloody faces of, and so fearful, just clearly um, a panic situation. And we didn't know what it was. We never would have thought of terrorism. We didn't think of terrorism at that point in time. We got Tom in his studio fired up very quickly. There had been a crater. That's one of the telltale signs that a car bomb has been exploded in front of a building. The mayor is saying there's an eight-foot crater and several, a couple of cars at least have been joined by the heat and the force of the explosion. Uh, and that makes the most sense in terms of the nature of the damage to the building and how they could then have avoided whatever security existed at the AP Murrah Federal Building. That's the correct name of it. And then once Brokaw is there, then the rest of the organization begins to drop everything else they planned and get going up to speed and a part of the program as well. Everyone at that point in our new staff was rushing toward that catastrophic area getting in place and reporting closer and closer and what they could. They all had, you know, that, that stunning disbelief of what they were looking at. You know, this is Oklahoma City for crying out loud. You know, nothing like this happens. Uh, they might have covered tornado damage and, you know, but, but nothing like this. Uh, and the debris that was flown you know, throughout the, the whole area, just, you know, for blocks and blocks. A friend of mine who used to work in our newsroom uh, showed up down there and, and you know, she, she recalled the vast and enormous destructive power of that bomb and the body parts that she saw in the trees nearby. You know, that's what she still remembers to this day. I thought it was an earthquake because I, I resided in California for many years and it was almost like slow motion. I, I felt a, a shake and then began shaking more and I, I, I dove under my desk and then the glass all came in. I think that helped save me. The, all the glass was gone. It's all over the office. Here's uh, another person being taken to ambulances. Uh, obviously a, a major tragedy here in downtown Oklahoma City. CNN cameraman Trace Reedy was the first of the cable network's team members to arrive in Oklahoma City. You know, everybody was just scrambling and it was just a, you could even tell the atmosphere even at the airport. It was different. Something major had happened. So I got my 
my gear. I got a rent car. And I started making my way to the scene. And so I was driving into Oklahoma City. And I remember it very vividly because I kind of thought on the plane up there, I thought, you know what? Because this has happened before. I'm going to land and they're going to find out it was a natural gas explosion and they're going to tell me to turn around and it was no big deal. Well, of course, that was not the case. When I got off the plane, the first thing I did was uh, find a payphone and call Beth. And she said, Stu, just get as many people as you possibly can for live interviews for the following morning. I had covered hurricanes and all kinds of explosions, but I wasn't really prepared for, for this one. We've got uh, people we're talking to through floors. Uh, this is very much like uh, what happened at the California earthquake where we've got pancake structures, uh, floors down on top of other floors. Uh, we've got the potential, according to our billing surveys, of having 900 people in that building during, during a workday. How many are out, we don't know. The video that I had seen didn't even compare to actually standing in front and and looking up and seeing just the floors uh, broken away and the rubble in front. It took my breath away. CNN's Tony Clark updates us on what happened throughout the day. It is a scene of tremendous destruction. Concrete floors have toppled on one another, leaving scores of injured and fears of a large death toll. When we were released to come out, the coroner had indicated that he needed 100 more body bags, so he wouldn't ask for that if he didn't need it. I remember going to the command post, and it was at that point I saw my best friend, the city councilman, and we just hugged, and he briefed me on what the latest was about the, uh, the bombing and the search uh, and rescue efforts underway. By the time I got there, downtown was in a pretty big state of disarray, and there was lots of law enforcement everywhere. It was just a madhouse. So the desk just told me, get as close as you can and start shooting pictures. You know, just start shooting tape of whatever you can as close as you can. One thing that really struck me was looking around and realizing everywhere I looked, there was destruction. It wasn't just that building. There were windows out of buildings. There was shrapnel in cars. There was just everywhere you looked, there was damage. That blast, it blew out windows for blocks around. And to see that and realize, oh my gosh, this was no natural gas explosion. It clued me in that this was something way bigger than I had ever dreamed of. It was unbelievable. We will continue with our story in just a moment. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad free top podcasts included with your prime membership. 
To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Brian Williams. We heard from KTOK Radio here in Oklahoma City. They are asked now to evacuate uh, 50 Penn Place, which is a, uh, a, a building which the FBI is located on the fourth floor. Intelligence reports were hinting in those first fevered hours that other federal buildings in cities like Omaha, Lincoln, and Topeka might also be targets. The FBI field office in Oklahoma City even feared their own building might be next. It was a building that also housed the radio station KTOK. An immediate evacuation was ordered, but Jerry Bonin wasn't having it. When I said, no, we can't. Uh, you know, I just, uh, it, it was one of those decisions that I just made that we weren't going to leave. And he tried to talk me into leaving, and I said, no, we, we can't leave. Uh, you know, we, we have an obligation here. I didn't consider it anything noble. I'm a journalist. I mean, this was my job. This was my responsibility. And I felt I had an obligation to keep informing our listeners about what had transpired here. And he finally said, okay, you're on your own. So he left and we stayed. President Clinton was in the middle of a photo session with the Turkish prime minister when his press secretary informed him of the blast. The president himself made a dramatic statement about the blast. The bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice and it was evil. The United States will not tolerate it. And I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards. Let there be no room for doubt. We will find the people who did this. When we do, justice will be swift, certain, and severe. These people are killers and they must be treated like killers. Throughout the day and the many days to come, first responders and survivors and family members of the missing and the dead told their stories to the hordes of local, national, and international news media that continued to arrive in that shattered city. Stu Dan reminds us that conducting those emotionally raw interviews is never an easy task. The key is to be as sensitive as possible and not to ask ridiculous questions like, did you ever think this would happen? To ask ridiculous and insensitive questions turns off the viewers and certainly will turn off the person you're trying to interview. You have to be sensitive and share the sorrow that they are feeling and let them talk as much as possible. And uh, sooner or later, you'll achieve that almighty soundbite. As a veteran NBC field producer, Stephanie Becker thought she'd seen it all. But she quickly realized nothing had prepared her for the magnitude of the violence and the suffering she was seeing all around her. I compartmentalized every disaster. I can walk away from this. This is not going to get to me. This happened to these people. I truly feel for them, but covering the Oklahoma City bombing 
devastated me because at the time it was the most massive disaster I had ever been to. And I just sat in my car for a while because I had never seen anything like that. I'd never been to a bombing like that. And it was overwhelming. Here is Connie Chung. Oklahoma City Mayor Ron Norick is with us now. Mr. Mayor, thank you for being with us. Uh, It's known that at least 20 people are dead. Do you know how many more people might be trapped in that rubble? Well, we get reports anywhere from uh, missing probably from two to 300 people are missing. We've set up hotline to my office requesting that anybody that was in that building call. and, and, And I just checked with my office and the lines were lit up. So we know there's a lot of people that have gotten away. Uh, that they're calling in, but there's there's over 500 people in that building this morning at a very busy time, 9 o'clock this morning. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Will you stay with us just in case we need to get back with you for an update? I arrived in Oklahoma City late at night. Chris Hansen recalls the moment he first saw the bombed-out shell of the federal building. I had seen some video along the way in the airports, but really didn't get the sense of the devastation, the damage, the catastrophe of it all until I arrived and you could see it and they were looking for survivors and there were dogs and rescuers and it was just overwhelming, the sense of destruction. And then to find out along the way that there were children in a nursery in the basement. At the time, my sons were one and three and I remember two boys who died in the explosion who were in that nursery were about the same age and their names were Chase and Colton and my sons are Chase and Connor and I just became very very emotional I thought what if somebody did this and my kids were in that nursery and it changed the way I looked at the story it wasn't just competitive news gathering or tapping on sources it was very human that was really heavy on my mind. The fact that, you know, I had just become a father and then just the thought of all the families that were uprooted in that moment. When you're doing news, you do have to condition yourself to see things that other people don't necessarily see. And it's not just about something gory or bloody or disturbing in that manner but it's seeing families and the faces of fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers and and those things affect you and i i believe that if you aren't affected by it then then there's something wrong with you if you're too much affected by it and it starts to overcome your life, then there's something wrong as well. But I think anybody that would say that they weren't affected by something like that, I I don't know how they could be telling the truth. So it was one thing to see the bodies being brought out, and I did shoot a lot of that. But it's another thing in the weeks followed to be doing stories with families of the children While Stephanie Becker continued lining up victims and first responders and local officials for interviews on that evening's nightly news broadcast and for the Today Show the next morning, she says her job as a guest booker took on a whole different meaning. I didn't feel I was 
booking people, I was giving them a platform to share with everybody I knew, because everybody I knew should know what's happening to these people more than I'm going to book a guest. I didn't feel like that at all. This country needed to see, my parents needed to see, my friends needed to see, everybody needed to see what happened. KTOK's Jerry Bonin recalls the biggest challenge for him and his reporting team. Just trying to put your whole arms around all of this, because some of these reporters, uh, you have to understand, were, you know, they were in their early 20s and they'd never gone through anything like this. And so uh, some of them just, they were in shock. Uh, And after a while, uh, as a reporter, uh, you had to, you had to come to grips with the, the reality of the situation. And I kept trying to tell them, this is the Pearl Harbor of your lifetime. You will never cover anything like this at that time. That was in 1995, I kept telling them that. And uh, you'll never cover anything as, as monumental as you, you know, as you are with this. Do the best to keep people informed of what was going on. And I put up this, 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 this sign I said, the C word is banned. C word continues. Nothing continues. That's not news. At least that's what I kept telling them. I want to know something else. You know, you just can't keep telling the listeners, the search continues. Otherwise, that's not news. And I said, come on, find something different. Tell them a different way of of what's going on here. Yes, I know it continues. Let's, let's be good descriptive reporters. Uh, the, the, they do have suspect information. This has come out from the FBI. Uh, two of the men involved, perhaps, are Middle Eastern men. Uh, one is 20 to 25, the other is 35 to 38. Both Initial reports that this might somehow be the work of Middle Eastern terrorists proved to be panicked speculation. In fact, within 90 minutes of the bomb going off, the FBI, in tandem with local law enforcement, literally pieced together the evidence leading to the identity of their prime suspects. A twisted axle of what may have been the car with the explosives was found two blocks from the federal building. Tony Clark, CNN, Oklahoma City. Here again is Chris Hansen. So they find a piece of the transmission axle casing on the scene. It's got a VIN number on it. They run the VIN number on it. It comes back to Ryder Rent-A-Truck. Who rented the truck? McVeigh and Nichols. Then the Regency Tower Apartments, which are right there, had surveillance video, which captured the rental truck pulling up, McVeigh running away, and the explosion. All of this is on video. So McVeigh had been identified and was pulled over in a traffic stop driving his yellow Mercury Marquis with no license plate. They also found an illegal weapon. He had a Glock with him in the car, and they hauled him in. He was armed with a weapon. A trooper hanger brought him in and incarcerated him here in the Noble County Jail. And we've had him uh, ever since. Was he nervous? Was he quiet? Quiet? Didn't, Didn't say much. He could have walked away on bail. Had the FBI not called. That's correct. I was actually at home for lunch and heard it on the radio and could not believe that he had actually ended up here in Perry. You automatically think 
they've probably gotten on a plane and gone somewhere and hits really close to home. Then the hunt was on for Terry Nichols, McVeigh's partner in this crime, and they arrested him. The rapid pace of the investigation and how they were able to put this together is amazing to me to this day. The first time I saw Timothy McVeigh, he just, he looked like a soldier. He was clean cut. He was not the the kind of person that you would have thought would set off a, a bomb there. When they arrested McVeigh and they did that perp walk, remember there was a big crowd. People started booing and stomping their feet, and I swear you could feel the ground shaking. It was extraordinary. Chris Hansen recalls his impressions of Timothy McVeigh. It was chilling to see him. He had no emotion, no look of regret, just stone cold. He served in the Army, in the infantry, in the first Gulf War in 1991, got out, His only affiliations, it appeared at the time, were the NRA and the Republican Party in the Buffalo, New York area. And he became disaffected and disappointed in his country, his federal government. And he started traveling across the country, going to gun shows and getting involved in networks of other like-minded people, people who had a problem with the ATF or the federal government in general people who were offended by what happened on Ruby Ridge or in Waco. And that's why he chose April 19th and the time on April 19th, because it was the anniversary of the the Waco fire and those deaths. While the national news media focused on McVeigh and Terry Nichols, Jerry Bonin and staff focused on the practical needs of rescuers in their race against time. The calls went out for things like gloves, and we were putting out that word, you know, this is what we need here, and this is what they need here, and this is uh, what was going on around the building. They were picking through the rubble, you know, trying to find bodies in anyone who might have survived. People responded. They would come in and bring in brand new leather gloves that they could buy at a store, or maybe they had, uh, you know, hanging around their house, and they would give them to the rescuers and to the emergency responders. I think the thing that makes it sometimes so tough to cover is you get these very human stories, and they're not just names. They're not just numbers. There was a a nurse, Barbara Anderson, who was not in the federal building when it uh, was blown up. But she came running to try and help, and she was out front when a piece of the building came down and hit her in the head and killed her. I think it's stories like that that remind you of the the humanity of what you're covering. In fact, at my desk now, I keep a chunk of the granite from the Murrell building that I saved from that day, just as a reminder of uh, what it was like. Trace Reedy recalls how the bombing was a thunderous shock to our nation that quickly grabbed the attention of the whole world. 
so that night we were doing just live shot after live shot and they had put lights up on the building so you could see the building in the distance behind the reporters and all of a sudden I turned around and looked and I'm surrounded by just hundreds of people news crews from all over the world and you know just several hours earlier that morning ah, I was the only one there it was like I turned around and this flood of people caught up with me and because CNN was a an international network, it was just nonstop. It was, okay, we do live shots with this reporter f- until 7 o'clock at night, 8 o'clock at night. And then there's another reporter coming in. We're going to do live shots with her, and we're going to do that all night. That's for Europe and all these other places. So it just became a blur all night. So it was about 4 in the morning when... I was finally released. They had other people to relieve me, and they told us to go to the Meridian Hotel, and they checked us in. So by the time I woke up that next afternoon, I go down the hotel and walk down this hallway and go to this office space they told me to go to and open the door, and there's uh, probably a 100 people in there. There was edit machines set up. There was fax machines there was reporters you know it was it was a fully functioning news bureau in fact for a while there Oklahoma City Bureau that we set up in the bottom of that hotel was the biggest news bureau in CNN between Atlanta and LA we chased so many leads early on there was one of those situations where my line of contact information intelligence was so good that sometimes we were ahead of the other media. And that honestly caused some problems for me with my editors because our competition would be reporting one thing and I would already know that that was wrong and we were moving on to the next lead. And I was getting yelled at because why don't we have this? And I said, well, it's wrong. Hang on a minute and I'll give you what is right. And a specific example of that was there were two characters named Jax and Land. They were the, those were their last names. Two ne'er-do-well drifters who were amazingly staying in and around where Nichols and McVeigh were in the ramp-up to the bombing and in the days after they were in the area. And it was a heck of a coincidence that these two guys were in these drifty hotels and around, and, and they were suspicious characters. But... It turned out that they had nothing to do with the bombing. So they arrest Jackson Land and they question him. And it becomes very clear that they had nothing to do with it. And I've already talked to the guy who was in the room next to the interrogation who said, these guys are just jokers. They had nothing to do with it. So that's what we report. Now, my competition at ABC reports something different and I'm getting yelled at and my producer is stressed out and, and, you know, finally at midnight, they released these guys on local news and, you know, we were right, and, which I knew. The bombing motivated by anti-government extremist beliefs killed 168 people. It left hundreds more physically injured and emotionally scarred. At the time, it was the deadliest terrorist attack the U.S. had ever seen. It remains the worst ever committed by an American on U.S. soil. 
And for those of us who covered it, it has left a painful and indelible mark. I was chief White House correspondent for NBC News back then, and I was in the Oval Office that morning at a press event when the chief of staff, Leon Panetta, leaned over and told President Clinton that there had been an explosion at the federal building in Oklahoma City. Again, first reports were that it had been a gas explosion. And as more became known, a sadness descended on the West Wing. Beyond the tragedy that our nation had just suffered, this was personal inside the White House because of a Secret Service agent named Alan Witcher. Alan was a beloved member of the president's security detail who left Washington to take a job better suited for family life. He became the head of the Secret Service regional office in Oklahoma City. He was at work that morning in the Murrah Federal Building and was killed in the explosion. I covered Oklahoma City then and through the trials and going back for the anniversaries and the execution. And I will say, in covering all of that, I made three extraordinary friends. One person who was there covering it and went on to work at the memorial, and the mom of a woman who was killed, and a woman who survived the bombing when everybody else in her office perished. She had been a couple of feet away from where the floor collapsed, and everybody on the other side of the office was killed. And these women are still in my life. Oklahoma City changed the way I feel about what I do. And as I said before, yeah, I was the disaster queen. Something bad happens, send Becker. But this one became incredibly personal. Also, covering Oklahoma City made me a more empathetic journalist. For the first anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing, I was initially asked to be the person who read the names of the victims because of my ties to to Oklahoma City. And I told them I, I could not do that. I needed to be a journalist rather than the participant. But I remember walking from the hotel that morning to the, uh, the site of the, uh, where the memorial service was going to be. And there were blue ribbons tied on all the, the doors. And I remember tears coming to my eyes um, uh, as, I, as I walked. In fact, even thinking about it now, all these years later, um, it does have an effect um, that um, stays with you. I was in Oklahoma City for four months. There was so much to do and so many stories going in different directions. But after Oklahoma City... I left CNN. I had covered the Colleen massacre in Colleen, Texas at the Lubies. And I spent 65 days in Waco. And then I also covered the entire 
federal trial of the Branch Davidian defendants in San Antonio, and that was another eight weeks. That was all before Oklahoma City happened. And so I think there was a big part of me that went, now, do I want to make this the rest of my career? Because I liked the adrenaline of going to a breaking news story. And as a photographer, a cameraman, I liked the creativity that I had when we would do little human interest and feature stories. But I realized after the Oklahoma City experience, or during it, that I was always on my way to somewhere where something bad had just happened. And that that kind of sunk into me a lot more doing all the stories of the kids and the building and the and all that. The advantage of somebody who's worked in the news business is that we have seen tragedy up close and it makes you appreciate the little things in your daily life much better. It puts it front and center in your mind about how quickly things can change. I'm Brian Williams. For more information on this episode, visit our website at weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. Now, please, this special message from Bill Curtis about the good works of the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Every day, broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air. It's the producers, engineers, management, sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years, the Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net, providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident or severe damage from a hurricane to the home of a broadcaster in need, the Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters in all areas of our industry, we thank you.